The Spectre, is still haunting Edward Bernstein. It's part two of Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. This is The Red Canon. I'm your host, Vinnie McLean. With The Red Canon, we set out to provide audiobooks of classic leftist literature. The Red Canon is only but a small part of Socialism is Good, actually. A political education project designed to provide a gritty pop, mini-comics, zines, and other media to radicalize the masses. Print-ready PDFs on topics such as class divisions, direct action, Posadism, and radical history are available at socialismisgood.com. If you want to directly contribute to the effort, we have a Patreon available at patreon.com socialismisgood. And if you want to help in a non-commodified manner, you can post positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we return to Social Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. This remains a critique of Edward Bernstein's strategy of building socialist power in the German Social Democratic Party and gets into the specifics of why this strategy, based entirely around reform, is doomed to fail. Without further ado, Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg Chapter 5 The Consequences of Social Reformism and General Nature of Reformism In the first chapter, we aimed to show that Bernstein's theory lifted the program of the socialist movement off its material base and tried to place it on an idealist base. How does this theory fare when translated into practice? Upon the first comparison, the party practice resulting from Bernstein's theory does not seem to differ from the practice followed by the Social Democrats up to now. Formerly, the activity of the Social Democratic Party consisted of trade union work, of agitation for social reforms, and the democratization of existing political institutions. The difference is not in the what, but in the how. At present, the trade union struggle and parliamentary practice are considered to be the means of guiding and educating the proletariat in the preparation of the task of taking over power. From the revisionist standpoint, the conquest of power is at the same time impossible or useless, and therefore trade union and parliamentary activity are to be carried on by the party only for their immediate results, that is, for the purpose of bettering the present situation of the workers, for the gradual reduction of capitalist exploitation, for the extension of social control. So that if we do not consider momentarily the immediate amelioration of the workers' condition, an objective common to our party program as well as to revisionism, the difference between the two outlooks is, in brief, the following. According to the present conception of the party, trade union and parliamentary activity are important for the socialist movement because such activity prepares the proletariat, that is to say, creates the subjective factor of the socialist transformation for the task of realizing socialism. But, according to Bernstein, trade unions and parliamentary activity gradually reduce capitalist exploitation itself. They remove from capitalist society its capitalist character, they realize objectively the desired social change. Examining the matter closely, we see that the two conceptions are diametrically opposed. Viewing the situation from the current standpoint of our party, we say that as a result of its trade union and parliamentary struggles, the proletariat becomes convinced of the impossibility of accomplishing a fundamental social change through such activity, and arrives at the understanding that the conquest of power is unavoidable. Bernstein's theory, however, begins by declaring that the conquest is itself impossible. It precludes by affirming that socialism can only be introduced as a result of the trade union struggle and parliamentary activity. For as seen by Bernstein, trade unions and parliamentary action has a socialist character because it exercises a progressively socializing influence on capitalist economy. We tried to show that this influence is purely imaginary. The relations between capitalist property and the capitalist state develop in entirely opposite directions, so that the daily practical activity of the present social democracy loses, in the last analysis, all connection with work for socialism. From the viewpoint of a movement for socialism, the trade union struggle in our parliamentary practices, 
are vastly important insofar as they make socialistic the awareness, the consciousness of the proletariat, and help organize it as a class. But, once they are considered as instruments of direct socialization of capitalist economy, they lose not only their usual effectiveness, but they also cease being a means of preparing the working class for the conquest of power. Edward Bernstein and Conrad Schmidt suffer from a complete misunderstanding when they console themselves with the belief that even though the program of the party has reduced to work for social reforms and ordinary trade union work, the final objective of the labor movement is not thereby discarded, for each step forward reaches beyond the given immediate gain, and the socialist goal is implied as a tendency in the supposed advance. That is certainly true about the present procedure of the German social democracy. It is true whenever a firm and conscious effort for conquest of political power impregnates the trade union struggle and the work for social reforms, but if this effort is separated from the movement itself and social reforms are made an end in themselves, then such activity not only does not lead to the final goal of socialism, but merely moves in a precisely opposite direction. Conrad Schmidt simply falls back on the idea that an apparently mechanical movement, once started, cannot stop by itself, because one's appetite grows with the eating, and the working class will not supposedly content itself with reforms till the final socialist transformation is realized. Now, the last-mentioned condition is quite real. Its effectiveness is guaranteed by the very insufficiency of capitalist reforms, but the conclusion drawn from it could only be true if it's possible to construct an unbroken chain of augmented reforms leading from the capitalism of today to socialism. That is, of course, sheer fantasy. In accordance with the nature of things as they are, as the chain breaks quickly and the paths that are supposedly forward movement can only take from that point... In the... And the paths that the supposed forward movement can take from that point are many and varied. What will be the immediate result should our party change its general procedure to suit a viewpoint that wants to emphasize the practical results of our struggle, that is, social reforms? As soon as immediate results become the principal aim of our activity, the clear-cut, irreconcilable point of view, which has meaning only insofar as it proposes to win power, will be found more and more inconvenient. The direct consequence of this will be the adoption by the party of a policy of compensation, a policy of political trading with an attitude of diffident political conciliation. But this attitude cannot be continued for a long time, since the social reforms can only offer an empty promise, the logical consequences of such a program must necessarily be disillusionment. It is not true that socialism will arise automatically from the daily struggle of the working class. Socialism will be a consequence of, one, the growing contradictions of capitalist economy, and two, of the comprehension of the working class of the unavoidability of the suppression of these contradictions through the social transformation. When, in the matter of revisionism, the first condition is denied, and the second rejected, the labor movement finds itself reduced to a simple cooperative and reformist movement. We move here in a straight line toward the total abandonment of the class viewpoint. The consequence of this also becomes evident when we investigate the general character of revisionism. It is obvious that revisionism does not wish to concede that its standpoint is that of the capitalist apologist. It does not join the bourgeois economists in denying the existence of the contradictions of capitalism, but, on the other hand, what precisely constitutes the fundamental point of revisionism and distinguishes it from the attitude taken by the social democracy up to now is that it does not base its theory on the belief of the contradictions of capitalism will be suppressed as a result of the logical interdevelopment of the present economic system. We may say that the theory of revisionism occupies an intermediate place between two extremes. Revisionism does not expect to see the contradictions of capitalists mature. It does not propose to suppress those contradictions through a revolutionary transformation. It wants to lessen, to attenuate, 
the capitalist contradictions, so that the antagonism existing between production and exchange is to be mollified by the cessation of crises and the formation of capitalist combines. The antagonism between capital and labor is to be adjusted by bettering the situation of the workers and by the conservation of the middle classes. And the contradiction between the class, state, and society is to be liquidated through increased state control and the progress of democracy. It is true that the present procedure of the social democracy does not consist in waiting for the antagonisms of capitalism to develop and in passing on only then to the task of suppressing them. On the contrary, the essence of revolutionary procedure is to be guided by the direction of the development once it is ascertained and inferring from this direction what consequences are necessary for the political struggle. Thus, the social democracy has combated tariff wars and militarism without waiting for their revolutionary character to become fully evident. Bernstein's procedure is not guided by consideration of the development of capitalism, but by the prospect of aggravation of its contradictions. It is guided by the prospect of the attenuation of these contradictions. He shows this when he speaks of the adaptation of capitalist economy. Now, when can such a conception be correct? If it is true that capitalism will continue to develop in the direction that it takes at present, then its contradictions must necessarily become sharper and more aggravated instead of disappearing. The possibility of the attenuation of the contradictions of capitalism presupposes that the capitalist mode of production itself will stop its progress. In short, the general condition of Bernstein's theory is the secession of capitalist development. This way, however, his theory condemns itself in a twofold manner. In the first place, it manifests its utopian character in its stand on the establishment of socialism, for it is clear that the defective capitalist development cannot lead to a socialist transformation. In the second place, Bernstein's theory reveals its reactionary character when it refers to the rapid capitalist development that is taking place at present. Given the development of real capitalism, how can we explain, or rather state, Bernstein's position? We have demonstrated in the first chapter the baselessness of the economic conditions on which Bernstein builds his analysis of existing social relationships. We have seen that neither the credit system nor the cartels can be said to be the means of adaptation of capitalist economy. We have seen that not even the temporary cessation of crises nor the survival of the middle class can be regarded as symptoms of capitalist adaptation. But, even though we should fail to take into account the erroneous character of these details of Bernstein's theory, we cannot help but be stopped by one feature common to all of them. Bernstein's theory does not seize upon the manifestation of contemporary economic life as they appear in their organic relationship with the whole of capitalist development, with the complete economic mechanism of capitalism. His theory pulls these details out of the living economic context. It treats them as disjecta membra, separate parts, of a lifeless machine. Consider, for example, his conception of the adaptive effect of credit. If we recognize credit as a higher natural stage of the process of exchange, and therefore of the contradictions inherent in capitalist exchange, we cannot at the same time see it as a mechanical means of adaptation existing outside of the process of exchange. It could be just as impossible to consider money, merchandise, and capital as means of adaptation of capitalism. It would be just as impossible to consider money, merchandise, and capital as the means of adaptation of capitalism. However, credit, like money, commodities, and capital, is an organic link of capitalist economy at a certain stage of its development. Like them, it is an indispensable gear in the mechanism of capitalist economy, and, at the same time, an instrument of destruction since it aggravates the internal contradictions of capitalism. The same thing is true about cartels and the new perfected means of communication. The same mechanical view is presented by Bernstein's attempt to describe the promise of the cessation of crises as a symptom of the adaptation of capitalist economy. For him, crises are simply derangements of the economic mechanism. 
With their cessation, he thinks, the mechanism could function well. But the fact is that crises are not derangements in the usual sense of the word. They are derangements without which capitalist economy could not develop at all. For if crises constitute the only method available in capitalism and therefore the normal method of solving periodically the conflict existing between the unlimited extension of production and the narrow limits of the world market, then crises are an organic manifestation inseparable from capitalist economy. In the unhindered advance of capitalist production lurks a threat to capitalism that is much greater than crises. It is the threat of the constant fall in the rate of profit, resulting not from the contradiction between production and exchange, but from the growth of the productivity of labor itself. The fall in the rate of profit has the extremely dangerous tendency of rendering impossible any enterprise for small and middle-sized capitalists. It thus limits the new formation and therefore the extension of the placement of capital. It is precisely the crises that constitute the other consequences of the same process. As a result of their periodic depreciation of capitalism, crises begin a fall in the prices of means of production, a paralysis of a part of the active capital, and in time the increase of profits. They thus create the possibilities of the renewed advance of production. Crises, therefore, appear to be instruments of rekindling the fire of capitalist development. Their cessation, not temporary cessation, but their total disappearance in the world market, would not lead to the further development of capitalist economy. It would destroy capitalism. True to the mechanical view of his history of adaptation, Bernstein forgets the necessity of crises as well as the necessity of new placements of small and medium-sized capitals, and that is why the constant reappearance of small capital seems to him to be the sign of the cessation of capitalist development, though it is, in fact, a symptom of the normal capitalist development. It is important to note that there is a viewpoint from which all the above-mentioned phenomena are seen exactly as they have been presented by the theory of adaptation. It is the viewpoint of the isolated single capitalist who reflects in his mind the economic facts around him, just as they appear when refracted by the laws of competition. The isolated capitalist sees each organic part of the whole of our economy as an independent entity. He sees them as they act on him, the single capitalist. He therefore considers these facts to be simple derangements of simple means of adaptation. For the isolated capitalist, it is true, crises are real simple derangements. The cessation of crises accords him a longer existence. As far as he is concerned, credit is only a means of adapting his insufficient productive forces to the needs of the market. It seems to him that the cartel of which he becomes a member really suppresses industrial anarchy. Revisionism is nothing more than a theoretical generalization made from the angle of the isolated capitalist. Where does the viewpoint belong theoretically, if not in vulgar bourgeois economics? All the errors of this school rest precisely on the conception that mistakes the phenomena of competition, as seen from the angle of the isolated capitalist, for the phenomena of the whole of capitalist economy. Just as Bernstein considers credit to be a means of adaptation to the needs of exchange, vulgar economy too tries to find an tries to find the antidote against the ills of capitalism in the phenomena of capitalism, like Bernstein. It believes that it is possible to regulate capitalist economy, and in the manner of Bernstein, it arrives in time at the desire to palliate the contradictions of capitalism, that is, at the belief in the possibility of patching up the source of capitalism. It ends up by subscribing to a program of reaction. It ends up in a utopia. The theory of revisionism can therefore be defined in the following way. It is a theory of standing still in the socialist movement built, with the aid of vulgar economy, on a theory of capitalist standstill. Part 2. Chapter 6. Economic Development and Socialism. The greatest conquest of the growing proletarian movement 
has been the discovery of grounds of support for the realization of socialism in the economic condition of capitalist society. As a result of this discovery, socialism was changed from an ideal dreamt by humanity for thousands of years to a thing of historic necessity. Bernstein denies the existence of the economic conditions for socialism in the society of today. On this count, his reasoning has undergone an interesting evolution. At first, in the New Times, he simply contested the rapidity of the process of concentration taking place in industry. He based his position on a comparison of the occupational statistics of Germany in 1882 and 1895. In order to use these figures for his purpose, he is obliged to proceed in an entirely summary and mechanical fashion. In the most favorable case, he could not, even by demonstrating the persistence of medium-sized enterprises, weaken in any of the Marxian analysis, because the latter does not suppose as any condition of the realization of socialism either definite rate of concentration of industry, that is, a definite delay of the realization of socialism, or, as we have already shown, the absolute disappearance of small capitals, usually described as the disappearance of the petite bourgeoisie. In the course of the latest development of his ideas, Bernstein furnishes us, in the book, a new assortment of proofs, the statistics of shareholding societies. These statistics are used in order to prove that the number of shareholders increases constantly, and, as a result, the capitalist class does not become smaller but grows bigger. It is surprising that Bernstein has so little acquaintance with his material. It is astonishing how poorly he utilizes the existing data in his own behalf. If he wanted to disprove the Marxian law of industrial development by referring to the condition of shareholding societies, he should have resorted to entirely different figures. Anybody who is acquainted with the history of shareholding societies in Germany knows that their average foundation of capital has diminished almost constantly. Thus, while before 1871 their average foundational capital reached the figure of 10.8 million marks, it was only 4.01 million marks in 1871, 3.8 million marks in 1873, less than a million from 1882 to 1887, 0.52 million in 1891, and only 0.62 million in 1892. After this date, the figures oscillated around 1 million marks, falling to 1.78 in 1895, and to 1.19 in the course of the first half of 1897. Those are surprising figures. Using them, Bernstein hoped to show that the existence of a counter-Marxian tendency for retransformation of large enterprises into smaller ones. The obvious answer to this attempt is the following. If you are to prove anything at all by means of your statistics, you must first show that they refer to the same branches of industry. You must not show that the small enterprises really replace large ones, that they do not. Instead, they only appear where small enterprises or even artisan industry were the rule before. This, however, you cannot show to be true. The statistical passage of immense shareholding societies to middle class and small enterprises can be explained only by referring to the fact that the system of shareholding societies continues to penetrate new branches of production. Before, only a small number of large enterprises were organized as shareholding societies. Gradually, shareholding organization has won middle class and even small enterprises. Today, we can observe shareholding societies with a capital of below 1,000 marks. Now, what is the economic significance of the extension of the system of shareholding societies? Economically, the spread of shareholding societies stands for the growing socialization of production under the capitalist form. Socialization, not only of large, but also of middle-sized and small production. The extension of shareholding does not, therefore, contradict Marxist theory, but on the contrary, confirms it emphatically. What does the economic phenomenon 
of shareholding society actually amount to. It represents, on one hand, the unification of the number of small fortunes into a large capital of production. It stands, on the other hand, for the separation of production from capitalist ownership. That is, it denotes that a double victory being won over the capitalist mode of production, but still on a capitalist base. What is the meaning, therefore, of the statistics cited by Bernstein, according to which an ever greater number of shareholders participate in the capitalist enterprises? These statistics go on to demonstrate precisely the following. At present, a capitalist enterprise does not correspond, as before, to a single proprietor of capital, but to a number of capitalists. Consequently, the economic notion of capitalist no longer signifies an isolated individual. The individual capitalist of today is a collective person composed of hundreds or even thousands of individuals. The category of capitalist has become a social category. It has become socialized within the framework of capitalist society. In that case, how shall we explain Bernstein's belief that the phenomena of shareholding societies stands for the dispersion of the concentration of capital? Why does he see the extension of capitalist property where Marx cites suppression? There is a simple economic error. By capitalist, Bernstein does not mean a category of production, but the right to property. To him, capitalist is not an economic unit, but a fiscal unit. And capital is, for him, not a factor of production, but simply a certain quantity of money. That is why in his English Sewing Thread Trust, he does not see the fusion of 12,300 persons with money into a single capitalist unit, but 12,300 different capitalists. That is why the engineer Schultz, whose wife's dowry bought him a large number of share from stockholder Muller, is also a capitalist for Bernstein. That is why, for Bernstein, the entire world seems to swarm with capitalists. Here, too, the theoretical base for his economic error is his popularization of socialism, for this is what he does. By transporting the concept of capitalism from its productive relations to property relations, and by speaking of simple individuals instead of speaking of entrepreneurs, he moves the question of socialism from the domain of production into the domain of relations of fortune, that is, that is, from the relation of capital to labor, to the relation between rich and poor, poor and rich. In this manner, we are merrily led from Marx and Engels to the author of The Evangel of the Poor Fisherman. There is a difference, however. Whiteling, with the sure instinct of the proletarian, saw in the opposition between rich and poor the class antagonisms in their primitive form and wanted to make of these antagonisms a lever for the movement of socialism. Bernstein, on the other hand, locates the realization of socialism in the possibility of making the poor rich. That is, he locates it in the attenuation of class antagonisms and therefore in the petty bourgeoisie. True, Bernstein does not limit himself to the statistics of incomes. He furnishes statistics of economic enterprises, especially those of the following countries, Germany, France, England, Switzerland, Austria, and the United States. But these statistics are not the comparative figures of the different periods in each country, but of each period in different countries. We are not therefore offered, with the exception of Germany, where he repeats the old contrast between 1895 and 1892, a comparison of the statistics of enterprise of a given country at different epochs, but the absolute figures for different countries. England in 1891, France in 1894, the United States in 1890, etc. He reaches the following conclusion. Though it is true that large exploitation is already supreme in industry today, it nevertheless represents, including the enterprises dependent on large exploitation, even in a country as developed as in Prussia, only half of the population occupied in production. That is, also true about Germany, England, Belgium, etc. What does he actually prove here? He proves not the existence of such 
a tendency of economic development, but merely the absolute relation of forces of different types of enterprise, or, to put in other words, the absolute relations of the various classes in our society. Now, if one wants to prove in this manner the impossibility of realizing socialism, one's reasoning must rest on the theory according to which the result of the social efforts is decided by the relation of the numerical material forces in the elements in the struggle, that is, by the factor of violence. In other words, Bernstein, who always thunders against Blanquiism, see Louis Blanqui, himself falls into the grossest Blanquiist error. There is the difference, however, to the Blanquists, who represent a socialist and revolutionary tendency, the possibility of the economic realization of socialism appeared quite natural. On this possibility, they built the chances of a violent revolution, even by a small minority. Bernstein, on the contrary, infers from the numerical insufficiency of socialist majority the impossibility of the economic realization of socialism. The social democracy does not, however, expect to attain its aim either as a result of the victorious violence of a minority or through the numerical superiority of a majority. It sees socialism come as a result of economic necessity, and the comprehension of that necessity leading to the suppression of capitalism by the working masses. And this necessity manifests itself above all in the anarchy of capitalism. What is Bernstein's position on the decisive question of anarchy in capitalist economy? He denies only the great general crises. He does not deny partial and national crises. In other words, he refuses to see the great deal of the anarchy of capitalism. He only sees very little of it. He is, to use Marx's illustration, like a foolish virgin who had a child who was only very small. But the misfortune is that in matters like economic anarchy, little and much are equally bad. If Bernstein recognizes the existence of a little of this anarchy, we may point out to him that by the mechanism of the market economy, this bit of anarchy will be extended to unheard-of proportions, to end in collapse. But if Bernstein hopes to transform gradually his bit of anarchy into order and harmony while maintaining the system of commodity production, he again falls into one of the fundamental errors of bourgeois political economy, according to which the mode of exchange is independent of the mode of production. This is not the place for a lengthy demonstration of Bernstein's surprising confusion concerning the most elementary principles of political economy. But there is one point to which we are led by the fundamental questions of capitalist anarchy that must be clarified immediately. Bernstein declares that Marx's law of a surplus value is a simple abstraction. In political economy, a statement of this sort obviously constitutes an insult. But if surplus value is only a simple abstraction, if it is only a figment of the mind, then every normal citizen who has done military duty and pays his taxes on time has the same right as Karl Marx to fashion his individual absurdity, to make his own law of value. Marx has as much right to neglect the qualities of commodities till they are no more than the incarnation of quantities of simple human labor, as have the economists of the Bon-Javon school to make an abstraction of all the qualities of commodities outside their utility. That is Bernstein. Marx's social labor and Menger's abstract utility are quite similar, pure abstractions. Bernstein forgets completely that Marx's abstraction is not an invention, it is a discovery. It does not exist in Marx's head, but in market economy. It has not an imaginary existence, but a very real social existence. So real that it can be cut, hammered, weighed, and put in the form of money. The abstract human labor discovered by Marx is, in its developed form, no other than money. That is, precisely one of the greatest of Marx's discoveries. While, to all bourgeois political economists, 
From the first of the mercantilists to the last of the classicists, the essence of money has remained a mystic enigma. The bomb javans, abstract utility is, in fact, a conceit of the mind. Or, stated more correctly, it is a representation of intellectual emptiness, a private absurdity for which capitalism, nor any other society, can be made responsible, but only vulgar bourgeois economy itself. Hugging the brainchild, Bernstein, Baum, and Javans, and the entire subjective fraternity can remain twenty years or more before the mystery of money without arriving at the solution that is different from the one reached by any cobbler, namely, that money is also a, quote, useful thing. Bernstein has lost all comprehension of Marx's law of value. Anybody with a small understanding of Marxian economics can see that without the law of value, Marx's doctrine is incomprehensible, or, to speak more concretely, for him, who does not understand the nature of the commodity and its exchange, the entire economy of capitalism, with all its concatenations, must of necessity remain an enigma. What precisely was the key which enabled Marx to open the door of the secrets of capitalist phenomena and solve, as if in play, problems that were not even suspected by the greatest minds of classic bourgeois economy? It has his conception of capitalist economy as a historic phenomena, not merely in the sense recognized in the best of cases by the classic economists, that is, when it concerns the feudal past of capitalism, but also insofar as it concerns the socialist future of the world. The secret of Marx's theory of value, of his analysis of the problem of money, of his theory of capital, of his theory of the rate of profit and consequently of the entire existing economic system, is found in the transitory character of capitalist economy. The inevitability of its collapse leading, and that is the only aspect of the same phenomena, to socialism. It is only because Marx looked at capitalism from the socialist viewpoint, that is, from the historic viewpoint, that he was enabled to decipher the hieroglyphs of capitalist economy. And it is precisely because he took the socialist view as a point of departure for his analysis of bourgeois society that he was in the position to give a scientific base to the socialist movement. This is the measure by which we evaluate Bernstein's remarks. He complains of the dualism found everywhere in Marx's monumental capital. Quote, the work wishes to be a scientific study and prove, at the same time, a thesis that was only completely elaborated a long time before the editing of the book. It is based on a schema that already contains the result in which it wants to lead. The return to the Communist Manifesto, that is, the socialist goal, proves the existence of vestiges of utopianism in Marx's doctrine. But what is Marx's dualism? Is it not the dualism of the socialist future and the capitalist present? Is it the dualism of capitalism and labor? The dualism of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat? Is it the scientific reflection of the dualism existing in bourgeois society? The dualism of the class antagonism writhing inside the social order of capitalism? Bernstein's recognition of his theoretic dualism in Marx as a survival of utopianism is really his naive avowal that he denies the class antagonisms in capitalism. It is in his confession that socialism has become to him only a survival of utopianism. What is Bernstein's monism, Bernstein's unity, but the eternal unity of the capitalist regime, the unity of the former socialist who has renounced his aim and has decided to find in bourgeois society one in immutable, the goal of human development? Bernstein does not see in the economic structure of capitalism the development that leads to socialism, but, in order to conserve his socialist program, at least in form, 
he is obligated to take refuge in an idealist construction placed outside all economic development. He is obliged to transform socialism itself from a definite historical phase of social development into an abstract principle. That is why the cooperative principle, the meager decantation of socialism by which Bernstein wishes to garnish capitalist economy, appears as a concession made not to the socialist future of society, but to Bernstein's own socialist past. This episode of The Red Cannon is brought to you by Zip Decapitator. Say you're a guy. You've overthrown your aristocratic class and executed your king. You've brought freedom, equality, and brotherhood to everyone who can't afford pants. Things are going great. You want to spread that around. But then it turns out it's actually pretty hard to throw off the shackles of every other feudal society. The tension in your society is suddenly overwhelming. You need Zip Decapitator. Too many agents of the reactionary old social order getting you down? Now you have a safe, effective, and humane method of removing them from society. Incompetent monarch destroying your economy? Zip Decapitator. Guy stealing bread? Zip Decapitator. And when you lose your own tenuous grip on power? Zip Decapitator. With the Red Cannon, you can get 13% off the top. Just go to ZipDecapitator.com forward slash coupon code BABOOF. Zip Decapitator. When you need some good head. Chapter 7. Cooperatives. Unions. Democracy. Bernstein's socialism offers to the workers the prospect of sharing in the wealth of society. The poor are to become the rich. How will this socialism be brought about? In his article in the New Times, Problems of Socialism, only vague allusions to this question, adequate information, however, can be found in his book. Bernstein's socialism is to be raised with the aid of those two instruments, labor unions, or as Bernstein himself characterizes them, economic democracy, and cooperatives. The first will suppress industrial profit, the second will do away with commercial profit. Cooperatives, especially cooperatives in the field of production, constitute a hybrid form in the midst of capitalism. They can be described as small units of socialized production within capitalist exchange. But, in capitalist economy, exchanges dominate production. As a result of competition, the complete domination of the process of production, in the interests of capital that is, pitiless exploitation becomes the condition for the survival of each enterprise. Domination of capital over the process of production expresses itself in the following ways. Labor is intensified. The workday is lengthened or shortened according to the situation of the market and, depending on the requirements of the market, labor is either employed or thrown back into the street. In other words, use is made of all the methods that enable an enterprise to stand up against its competitors in the market. The workers forming a cooperative in the field of production are thus faced with the contradictory necessity of governing themselves with the utmost absolutism. They are obliged to take toward themselves the role of capitalist entrepreneur, of contradiction that accounts for the usual failure of production cooperatives, which either become pure capitalist enterprises or, if the workers' interests continue to predominate, end by dissolving. Bernstein has himself taken note of these facts, but it is evident that he has not understood them. For example, together with Mrs. Potter Webb, he explains the failure of production cooperatives in England by their lack of discipline. But what is so superficially and flatly called here discipline is nothing more than the natural absolutist regime of capitalism, which it is plain the workers cannot successfully use against themselves. Producers' cooperatives can survive within the capitalist economy only if they manage to suppress, by the means of some detour, the capitalist controlled contradictions between the mode of production and the mode of exchange. And they can accomplish this only by removing themselves artificially from the influence of the laws of free competition. And they can succeed in doing the last only 
when they assure themselves beforehand of a constant circle of consumers, that is, when they assume themselves of a constant market. It is the consumer's cooperative that can offer this service to its brother in the field of production. Here, and not in Oppenheimer's distinction between cooperatives that produce and cooperatives that sell, is the secret sought by Bernstein. The explanation for the invariable failure of producers' cooperatives functioning independently and their survival when they are backed by consumers' organizations. It is true that the possibility of existence of producers' cooperatives within capitalism are bound up with the possibilities of existence of consumers' cooperatives. Then the scope of the former is limited, in the most favorable cases, to the small local market and the manufacture of articles serving immediate needs, especially food products. Consumers and therefore producers' cooperatives are excluded from the more important branches of capital production, the textile mining, metallurgical, petroleum industries, machine construction, locomotive and shipbuilding. For this reason alone, forgetting for the moment their hybrid character, cooperatives in the field of production cannot be seriously considered as the instrument of general social transformation. The establishment of producers' cooperatives on a wide scale would suppose, first of all, suppression of the world market, the breaking up of the present world economy into small local spheres of production and exchange, the highly developed, widespread capitalism of our time is expected to fall back to the merchant economy of the Middle Ages. Within the framework of present society, producers' cooperatives are limited to the role of simple annexes of consumers' cooperatives. It appears, therefore, that the latter must be the beginning of the proposed social change, but this way the expected reform of society by means of cooperative ceases to be an offensive against capitalist production, that is, it ceases to be an attack on the principal basis of capitalist economy, it becomes instead a struggle against commercial capital, especially small and middle-sized commercial capital. It becomes an attack made on the two twigs of the capitalist tree. According to Bernstein, trade unions too are a means of attack against capitalism in the field of production. We have already shown that the trade unions cannot give workers a determining influence over production. Trade unions can determine neither the dimensions of production nor the technical progress of production. This much may be said about the purely economic side of the struggle of the rate of wages against the rate of profit, as Bernstein labels the activity of the trade union. It does not take place in the blue of the sky. It takes place within the well-defined framework of the law of wages. The law of wages is not shattered but applied by trade union activity. According to Bernstein, it is not trade unions that lead in the general movement for the emancipation of the working class, the real attack against the rate of industrial profit, according to Bernstein. Trade unions have the task of transforming the rate of industrial profit into rates of wages. The fact that trade unions are able to execute an economic offensive against profit. The fact is that trade unions are least able to execute an economic offensive against profit. Trade unions are nothing more than the organized defense of labor power against the attacks of capital. They express the resistance offered by the working class to the oppression of the capitalist economy. On the one hand, trade unions have the function of influencing the situation in the labor power market. But this influence is being constantly overcome by the proletarianization of the middle layers of our society, a process which continually brings new merchandise on the labor market. The second function of the trade unions is to ameliorate the condition of the workers, that is, they attempt to increase the share of the social wealth going to the working class. This share, however, is being reduced with the fatality of the natural process by the growth of the productivity of labor. One does not need to be a Marxist to notice it suffices to read Rodbertus's In Explanation of the Social Question. In other words, the objective conditions of capitalist society transform, transform the two economic functions of the trade unions into a sort of labor of Sisyphus, 
that is, nevertheless indispensable, for as a result of this activity in the trade unions, the worker succeeds in obtaining for himself the rate of wages due him in accordance with the situation of the labor power market. As a result of trade union activity, the capitalist law of wages is applied, and the effect of the depressing tendency of economic development is paralyzed, or, to be more exact, attenuated. However, the transformation of the trade union into an instrument for the progressive reduction of profit in favor of wages presupposes the following social conditions. First, the cessation of proletarianization of the middle strata of our society. Second, a stoppage of the growth of productivity of labor. We have in both cases a return to pre-capitalist conditions. Cooperatives and trade unions are totally incapable of transforming the capitalist mode of production. This is really understood by Bernstein, though in a confused manner, for he refers to cooperatives and trade unions as a means of reducing the profit of the capitalists and thus enriching the workers. In this way, he renounces the struggle against the capitalist mode of production and attempts to direct the socialist movement to struggle against capitalist distribution again and again. Bernstein refers to socialism as an effort towards a just, juster, and still more just mode of production. Vorwarts, March 26, 1899. It cannot be denied that the direct cause leading to the popular masses into the socialist movement is precisely the unjust mode of distribution characteristic of capitalism. When the social democracy struggles for the socialization of the entire economy, it aspires therewith also to a just distribution of the social wealth. But... Guided by Marx's observation that the mode of distribution of a given epoch is a natural consequence of the mode of production of that epoch, the social democracy does not struggle against distribution in the framework of capitalist production, it struggles instead for the suppression of the capitalist production itself, in a word. The social democracy wants to establish the mode of socialist distribution by suppressing the capitalist mode of production. Bernstein's method, on the contrary, proposes to combat the capitalist mode of distribution in the hopes of gradually establishing, in this way, the socialist mode of production. What, in that case, is the basis of Bernstein's program for the reform of society? Does it find support in definite tendencies of capitalist production? No. In the first place, he denies such tendencies. In the second place, the socialist transformation of production is for him the effect and not the cause of distribution. He cannot give the program a materialist base because he has already overthrown the aims and the means of the movement for socialism, and therefore its economic conditions. As a result, he is obliged to construct himself an idealist base. Why represent socialism as the consequences of economic compulsion, he complains? Why degrade man's understanding of his feelings for justice, his will? Vorwarts, March 26, 1899. Bernstein's superlatively just distribution is to be attained thanks to man's free will, Man's will, acting not because of economic necessity, but since this will is his only instrument, but because of man's comprehension of justice, because of man's idea of justice. We thus quite happily return to the principle of justice, to the old war horse on which the reformers of the earth have rocked for ages, for the lack of sure means of historic transportation. We return to the lamentable Rosanate, on which the Don Quixotes of history have galloped towards the great reform of the earth always to come home with their eyes blackened. The relation of the poor to the rich, taken as a base for socialism, the principle of cooperation as the content of socialism, the most just distribution as its aim, and the idea of justice as the only historical legitimization, with how much more force, more with and more, fire did Whiteling defend that sort of socialism fifty years ago. However, that genius of a tailor did not know scientific socialism if, today, 
conception tore into bits by Marx and Engels half a century ago is patched up and presented to the proletariat as the last word of social science, that too is the art of a tailor, but it has nothing of a genius about it. Trade unions and cooperatives are the economic support for the theory of revisionism. Its principal political condition is the growth of democracy. The present manifestation of political reaction are to Bernstein only displacement. He considers them accidental, momentary, and suggests that they are not to be considered in the elaboration of the general directives of the labor movement. To Bernstein, democracy is an inevitable stage in the development of society. To him, as to the bourgeois theoreticians of liberalism, democracy is the greatest fundamental law of historic development, the realization of which is served by all the forces of political life. However, Bernstein's thesis is completely false. Presented in this absolute force, it appears as a petty bourgeois vulgarization of results of a very short phase of bourgeois development, the last 25 or 30 years. We reach different conclusions when we examine the historic development of democracy a little closer and consider, at the same time, the general political history of capitalism. Democracy has been found in the most dissimilar social formations, in primitive communist groups, in the slave states of antiquity, and in medieval communes. And similarly, absolutism and constitutional monarchy are to be found under the most varied of economic orders. When capitalism began with the first production of commodities, it resorted to a democratic constitution in the municipal communes of the Middle Ages. Later, when it developed to manufacturing, capitalism found its corresponding political form in the absolute monarchy. Finally, as a developed industrial economy, it brought into being, in France, the Democratic Republic of 1793, the absolute monarchy of Napoleon I, the nobles' monarchy of the Restoration period, 1850 to 1830 to 1850, the bourgeois constitutional monarchy of Louis-Philippe, and then again the Democratic Republic, and against the monarchy of Napoleon III, and finally for the third time, the Republic. In Germany, the only truly democratic institution, universal suffrage, is not a conquest won by bourgeois liberalism. Universal suffrage in Germany was an instrument for the fusion of the small states. It is only in this sense that it has any importance for the development of the German bourgeoisie, which is otherwise quite satisfied with the semi-feudal constitutional monarchy. In Russia, capitalism prospered for a long time under the regime of Oriental absolutism without having the bourgeoisie manifest the least desire in the world to introduce democracy. In Austria, universal suffrage was, above all, a safety line thrown to the foundering and decomposing monarchy. In Belgium, the conquest of universal suffrage by the labor movement was undoubtedly due to the weakness of the local militarism, and consequently to the special geographic and political situation of the country. But we have here a bit of democracy. It has been won not by the bourgeoisie, but against it. The uninterrupted victory of democracy, which, to our revisionism as well, as to bourgeois liberalism appears to be a great fundamental law of human history, and especially modern history, is shown upon close examination to be a phantom. No absolute and general relation can be constructed between capitalist development and democracy. The political form of the given country is always the result of the composite of all existing political factors, domestic as well as foreign. It admits within its limits all variations of the scale, from absolute monarchy to the democratic republic. We must abandon, therefore, all hope of establishing democracy as a general law of historical development, even within the framework of modern society. Turning to the present phase of bourgeois society, we observe here, too, political factors which, instead of assuring the realization of Bernstein's schema, led instead to the abandonment of, by bourgeois society 
of the democratic conquests won up to now. Democratic institutions, and this is of the greatest significance, have completely exhausted their functions as aids in the development of bourgeois society. Insofar as they are necessary to bring about the fusion of small states and the creation of larger modern states, Germany, Italy, they are no longer indispensable at present. Economic development has meanwhile affected an internal organic cistracization. The same thing can be said concerning the transformation of the entire political and administrative state machinery from feudal to semi-feudal mechanism to capitalist mechanism. While this transformation has been historically inseparable from the development of democracy, it has been realized today to such an extent that the purely democratic ingredients of society, such as universal suffrage and the republican state form, may be suppressed without having the administration, the state finances, or the military organization find it necessary to return to the forms they had before the March Revolution. If liberalism as such is now absolutely useless to bourgeois society as it has become, on the other hand, a direct impediment to capitalism from the other standpoint, two factors dominate completely the political life of contemporary states, world politics and the labor market. Each is only a different aspect of the present phase of capitalist development. As a result of the development of the world economy and the aggravation and generalization of competition on the world market, militarism and the policy of big navies have become, as instruments of world politics, a decisive factor in the interior as well as the exterior life of the great states. If it is true that the world politics and militarism represent a rising tendency in the present phase of capitalism, then bourgeois democracy must logically move in a descending line. In Germany, the era of the Great Armament began in 1893, and the policy of world politics, inaugurated with the seizure of Kyashu, were paid for immediately with the following sacrificial victim. The decomposition of liberalism, the deflation of the center party, which passed from opposition to government. The recent elections in the Reichstag of 1907, unrolling under the sign of the German colonial policy, were, at the same time, the historical burial of German liberalism. If foreign politics pushed the bourgeoisie into the arms of reaction, this is no less true about the domestic politics, thanks to the rise of the working class. Bernstein shows that he recognizes this when he makes the social democratic legend, which wants to swallow everything, in other words, the socialist efforts of the working class responsible for the desertion of the liberal bourgeoisie. He advises the proletariat to disavow its socialist aim, so that the mortally frightened liberals might come out of the mouse hole of reaction, making the suppression of the socialist labor movement an essential condition for the preservation of bourgeois democracy. He proves in a striking manner that this democracy is in complete contradiction with the inner tendency of the development of the present society. He proves at the same time that the socialist movement is itself a direct product of that tendency. But he proves at the same time still another thing. By making the denouncement of the socialist aim an essential condition of the resurrected bourgeois democracy, he shows how inexact in its claim that bourgeois democracy is an indispensable condition of the socialist movement and the victory of socialism. Bernstein's reasoning exhausts itself in a vicious cycle. His conclusion swallows his premises. The solution is quite simple. In view of that fact that the bourgeois liberalism has given up its ghosts from fear of the growing labor movement and its final aim, we conclude that the socialist labor movement is today the only support that which is not the goal of the socialist movement, democracy. We must conclude that democracy can have no support. We must conclude that the socialist movement is not bound up the fate of democracy is bound up with the socialist movement. 
we must conclude from this that democracy does not require greater chances of survival as the socialist movement becomes sufficiently strong to struggle against the reactionary consequences of world politics and the bourgeois desertion of democracy. He who would strengthen democracy would want to strengthen and not weaken the socialist movement. He who renounces the struggle of socialism renounces both the labor movement and of democracy. Chapter 8. Conquest of Political Power the fate of democracy is bound up, we have seen, with the fate of the labor movement. But does the development of democracy render superfluous or impossible a proletarian revolution, that is, the conquest of political power by the workers? Bernstein settles the question by weighing minutely the good and bad sides of social reform and social revolution. He does it in the same manner the cinnamon or pepper is weighed out in a consumer cooperative store. He sees the legislative course of historic development as the action of intelligence, while the revolutionary course of historic development is for him the action of feeling. Reformist activity he recognizes as a slow method of historical progress. Revolution is a rapid method of progress. In legislation, he sees a methodical force. In revolution, a spontaneous force. We have known for a long time that the petty bourgeois reformer finds good and bad sides in everything. He nibbles a bit on all grasses. But the real course of events is little affected by such combination. The carefully gathered little pile of the good sides of all things possible collapses at the first fill-up of history. Historically, legislative reform and the revolutionary method function in accordance with influences that are much more profound than the consideration of the advantages or inconveniences of one method or another. In the history of bourgeois society, legislative reform served to strengthen progressively the rising class, till the latter was sufficiently strong to seize political power, to suppress the existing juridical system, and to construct itself a new one. Bernstein, thundering against the conquest of political power as a theory of Blanquist violence, has the misfortune of labeling as a Blanquist error that which has always been the pivot and the motive force of human history. For the first appearance of class societies having the class struggle as an essential content of their history, the conquest of political power, has been the aim of all rising classes. Here is the starting point and the end of every historical period. This can be seen in the long struggle of the Latin peasants against the financiers and nobility of ancient Rome, in the struggle of the medieval nobility against the bishops, and the struggle of the artisans against the nobles in the cities of the Middle Ages. In modern times, we see it in the struggle of the bourgeoisie against feudalism. Legislative reform and revolution are no different methods of historical development that can be picked out at the pleasure from the counter of history, just as one chooses hot or cold sausages. Legislative reform or revolution are different factors in the development of class society. They condition and complement each other, and they are at the same time reciprocally exclusive, as are the North and South Poles, the bourgeoisie and proletariat. Every legal constitution is a product of a revolution. In the history of classes, revolution is the act of political creation while legislation is the political expression of the life of a society that has already come into being. Work for reform does not contain its own force independent from the revolution. During every historic period, work for reforms is carried out only in the direction given to it by the impetus of the last revolution and continues as long as the impulsion from the last revolution continues to make itself felt. Or, to put it more concretely, in each historical period, Work for reforms is carried out only in the framework 
of the social form created by the last revolution. Here is the kernel of the problem. It is contrary to history to represent work for reforms as a long, drawn-out revolution and revolution as a condensed series of reforms. A social transformation and a legislative reform do not differ according to their duration, but according to their content. The secret of historical change through the utilization of political power resides precisely in the transformation of simple quantitative modification of the new quality, or to speak more concretely, in the passage of a historical period from one given form of society to another. This is why people who pronounce themselves in favor of the method of legislative reform in place and in contradistinction of the conquest of political power and social revolution do not choose a more tranquil, calmer, slower road to the same goal, but a different goal. Instead of taking a stand for the establishment of a new society, they take a stand on the surface modification of the old society. If we follow the political conceptions of revisionism, we arrive at the same conclusion that is reached when we follow the economic theories of revisionism. Our program becomes not the realization of socialism, but the reform of capitalism, not the suppression of the wage labor system, but the diminution of exploitation, that is, the suppression of the abuses of capitalism, instead of the suppression of capitalism itself. Does the reciprocal role of legislative reform and revolution apply only to the class struggle of the past? Is it possible that now, as a result of the development of the bourgeois juridical system, the function of moving society from one historic phase to another, belongs to legislative reform and the conquest of state power by the proletariat has become an empty phrase, as Bernstein puts it. The very opposite is true. What distinguishes bourgeois society from other class societies, from ancient society and from the social order of the Middle Ages? Precisely the fact that class domination does not rest on acquired rights, but on real economic relations. The fact that wage labor is not a juridical relation but purely an economic relation. In our juridical system, there is not a single legal formula for the class domination of today. The few remaining traces of such formula of class domination are, as that concerning servants, survivals of feudal society. How can wage slavery be suppressed the legislative way if wage slavery is not expressed the laws? Bernstein, who would do away with capitalism by means of legislative reforms, finds himself in the same situation as Opensky's Russian policeman who said, Quickly, I seized the rascal by the collar. But what do I see? The confounded fellow has no collar, and that is precisely Bernstein's difficulty. All previous societies were based on an antagonism between an opposing force and an oppressed class. Communist Manifesto. But in the preceding phases of modern society, this antagonism was expressed in distinctly determined juridical relations and could, especially because of that, accord, to a certain extent, a place to new relations within the framework of the old. In the midst of serfdom, the serf raised himself to the rank of a member of the town community. Communist Manifesto. How was this made possible? It was made possible by the progressive of all feudal privileges in the environs of the city. The corvée, the rights to special dress, the inheritance tax, the lord's claim to the best castle, the personal levy, marriage under duress, the right to succession, etc., which, altogether, constituted serfdom. The same way, the small bourgeoisie of the Middle Ages succeeded in raising itself, while it was still under the yoke of feudal absolutism, to the rank of bourgeoisie, Communist Manifesto. By what means? By the means of formal, partial suppression or complete loosening of the corporative bonds, by the progressive transformation of the fiscal administration and of the army. Consequently, when we consider the question from an abstract viewpoint, and not from the historic viewpoint we can imagine, in view of the former class relations, a legal passage, according to the reformist model, from 
feudal society to bourgeois society. But what do we see in reality? In reality, we see that legal reforms do not obviate the seizure of political power by the bourgeoisie, but have, on the contrary, prepared for it and led into it. A special social-political transformation was indispensable for the abolition of slavery as well as for the complete suppression of feudalism. But the situation is entirely different now. No law obliges the proletariat to submit himself to the yoke of capitalism. Poverty, the lack of means of production, obliges the proletariat to submit itself to the yoke of capitalism. And no law in the world can give the proletariat the means of production while it remains in the framework of bourgeois society. For not laws but economic development have torn the means of production from the producer's possession, and neither is the exploitation inside the system of wage labor based on laws. The level of wages is not fixed by legislation but by economic factors. The phenomenon of capitalist exploitation does not rest on a legal disposition but on a purely economic fact that labor power plays in this exploitation the role of a merchandise possessing, among other characteristics, the agreeable quantity of producing labor. More than the value it consumes in the form of the laborer's means of subsistence, in short, the fundamental relations of the domination of the capitalist class cannot be transformed by the means of legislative reform, but on the basis of capitalist society, because these relations have not been introduced by bourgeois laws, nor have they received any form of such laws. Apparently Bernstein is not aware of this, for he speaks of socialist reforms. On the other hand, he seems to express implicit recognition of this when he writes on page 10 of his book, The economic motive acts freely today, while formerly it was masked by all kinds of relations of domination and by all sorts of ideology. This is one of the peculiarities of the capitalist order, that within all the elements of the future society first assume in their development a form not approaching a socialism, but, on the contrary, a form moving more and more away from socialism. Production takes on a progressively increased social character. But under what form is this social character of capitalist production expressed? It is expressed in the form of the large enterprise, in the form of shareholding, in the form of the shareholding concern, the cartel, within which the capitalist antagonisms, capitalist exploitation, the oppression of labor power, are augmented to the extreme. It is one of the peculiarities of the capitalist order that, within it, all the elements of the future society first assume, in their development, a form not approaching socialism, but, on the contrary, a form moving more and more away from socialism. Production takes on a progressively increasing social character. But under what form is the social character of capitalist production expressed? It is expressed in the form of the large enterprise, in the form of the shareholding concern, the cartel, within which the capitalist antagonisms, capitalist exploitation, the oppression of labor power, augmented to the extreme. In the army, capitalist development leads to the extension of obligatory military service, to the reduction of the time of service, and consequently, to a material approach to a popular militia. But all of this takes place under the form of modern militarism, in which the domination of the people by the militarist state and the class character of the state manifest themselves most clearly. In the field of political relations, the development of democracy brings, in the measure that it finds a favorable soil, the participation of all popular strata in political life, and consequently, some sort of people's state. But this participation takes the form of a bourgeois parliamentarianism, in which class antagonisms and class domination are not done away with, but are, on the contrary, displayed in the open. Exactly because capitalist development moves through these contradictions, it is necessary to extract the kernel of socialist society from its capitalist shell. Exactly for this reason must the proletariat seize political power 
and suppress completely the capitalist system. Of course, Bernstein draws other conclusions. If the development of democracy leads to the aggravation and not to the lessening of capitalist antagonisms, the social democracy, he answers us, in order not to render its task more difficult, must, by all means, try and stop social reforms and the extension of democratic institutions, page 71. Indeed, that would be the right thing to do if the social democracy found it to its taste, in the petty bourgeois manner, the feudal task of picking for itself all the good sides of history and rejecting all the bad sides of history. However, in that case, it should at the same time try to stop capitalism in general, for there is no doubt the latter is the rascal placing all these obstacles in the way of socialism. But capitalism furnishes, besides these obstacles, also the only possibilities of realizing the socialist program. The same can be said for democracy. If democracy has become superfluous or annoying to the bourgeoisie, it is, on the contrary, necessary and indispensable to the working class. It is necessary to the working class because it creates the political forms, autonomous administration, electoral rights, etc., which will serve the proletariat as fulcrums in its task of transforming bourgeois society. Democracy is indispensable to the working class because only through the exercise of its democratic rights in the struggle for democracy can the proletariat become aware of its class interests and its historic task. In a word, democracy is indispensable not because it renders superfluous the concept of political power by the proletariat, but because it renders this conquest of power both necessary and possible. When Engels, in his preface to the class struggles in France, revised the tactics of the modern labor movement and urged the legal struggle as opposed to the barricades, he did not have in mind, this comes out of every line of the preface, the question of a definite conquest of political power, but the contemporary daily struggle. He did not have in mind the attitude that the proletariat must take toward the capitalist state at the time of the seizure of power, but the attitude of the proletariat while in the bounds of the capitalist state. Engels was giving directions to the proletariat oppressed, and not to the proletariat victorious. On the other hand, Marx's well-known sentence on the agrarian question in England, Bernstein leans on it heavily, in which he says, we shall probably succeed easier by buying the estates of the landlords, does not refer to the stand of the proletariat before, but after its victory. For there evidently can be a question of buying the property of an old dominant class only when the workers are in power. The possibility envisaged by Marx Pacific exercise of the dictatorship of the proletariat, and not the replacement of the dictatorship with capitalist social reforms. There was no doubt from Marx and Engels about the necessity of having the proletariat conquer political power. It is left to Bernstein to consider the poultry yard of bourgeois parliamentarianism by means of which we are to realize the most formidable social transformation of history, the passage from capitalist society to socialism. Bernstein introduces his theory by warning the proletariat against the danger of acquiring power too early. That is, according to Bernstein, ought to leave the bourgeois society in its current condition and itself suffer in a frightful defeat. If the proletariat came to power, it could draw from Bernstein's theory the following practical conclusion. To go to sleep, his theory condemns the proletariat at the most decisive moments of the struggle to inactivity, to a passive betrayal of its own cause. Our program would be a miserable scrap of paper if it could not serve us in all eventualities, at all moments of the struggle, and if it did not serve us by its application and not by its non-application. If our program contains the formula of the historical development of society from capitalism to socialism, it must also formulate in all its characteristic fundamentals all the transitory phases of this development, and it should consequently be able to indicate to the proletariat 
what ought to be its corresponding action at any moment on the road toward socialism. There can be no time for the proletariat when it would be obliged to abandon its program or to be abandoned by it. Practically, this is manifested in the fact that there can be no time when the proletariat, placed in power by the force of events, is not in the condition or not morally obliged to take certain measures for the realization of its program, that is, take transitory measures in the direction of socialism. Behind the belief that the socialist program can collapse completely at any point of the dictatorship of the proletariat, lurks the other belief that the socialist program is generally and at all times unrealizable. And what if the transitory measures are premature? The question hides a great number of mistaken ideas concerning the real courses of social transformation. In the first place, the seizure of political power by the proletariat, that is to say by a large popular class, is not produced artificially. It presupposes, with the exception of such cases as the Paris Commune, when the proletariat did not obtain power after a conscious struggle for its goal, but fell into its hands like a good thing abandoned by everyone else, a definite degree of maturity of economic and political relations. Here, we have the essential difference between coup d'etats, along with Blanqui's conception, which are accomplished by an active minority and burst out like pistol shot, always inopportunely, and the conquest of political power by a great conscious popular mass, which can only be the product of the decomposition of bourgeois society, and therefore bears in itself the economic and political legitimization of its opportune appearance. If, therefore, considered from the angle of political effect, the conquest of political power by the working class cannot materialize itself too early, then from the angle of conservation of power, the premature revolution, the thought which keeps Bernstein alive, menaces us like a sword of Damocles. Against that, neither prayers nor supplications, neither scares nor any amount of anguish are of any avail, and this is for two very simple reasons. In the first place, it is impossible to imagine that a transformation as formidable as the passage from capitalist society to socialist society can be realized in one happy act. To consider that as possible is, again, to lend color to conceptions that are clearly blanquist. The socialist transformation supposes a long and stubborn struggle, in the course of which it is quite probable the proletariat will be repulsed more than once, so that for the first time, from the viewpoint of the final outcome of the struggle, it will have necessarily come to power too early. In the second place, it would be impossible to avoid the premature conquest of state power by the proletariat precisely because these premature attacks of the proletariat constitute a factor, and indeed a very important factor, creating the political conditions for the final victory. In the course of the political crisis accompanying its seizure of power, in the course of the long and stubborn struggles, the proletariat will acquire the degree of political maturity permitted to it obtain in time a definitive victory of the revolution. Thus, these premature attacks of the proletariat against the state power are in themselves important historic factors, helping to provoke and determine the point of the definite victory. Considered from this viewpoint, the idea of a premature conquest of political power by the laboring class appears to be a polemic absurdity derived from a mechanical conception of the development of society and positing for the victory of the class struggle a fixed point outside and independent of the class struggle. Since the proletariat is not in the position to seize power in any other way than prematurely, since the proletariat is absolutely obliged to seize power once or several times, too early before it can maintain itself in power for good, the objection of the premature conquest of power is at bottom nothing more than the general opposition 
a general opposition to the aspiration of the proletariat to possess itself of state power. Just as all roads lead to Rome, so too do we logically arrive at the conclusion that the revisionist proposal to slight the final aim of the socialist movement is really a recommendation to renounce the socialist movement itself. Chapter 9. Collapse. Bernstein began his revision of the social democracy by abandoning the theory of the capitalist collapse. The latter, however, is the cornerstone of scientific socialism. By rejecting it, Bernstein also rejects the whole doctrine of socialism. In the course of his discussion, he abandons, one after another, the positions of socialism in order to maintain his first affirmation. Without the collapse of capitalism, the expropriation of the capitalist class is impossible. Bernstein, therefore, renounces expropriation and chooses a progressive realization of cooperative principle as the aim of the labor movement. But cooperation cannot be realized without capitalist production. Bernstein, therefore, renounces the socialization of production and merely proposes to reform commerce and to develop consumers' cooperatives. But the transformation of society through consumers' cooperatives, even by the means of trade unions, is incompatible with the real material development of capitalist society. Therefore, Bernstein abandons the materialist conception of history. But his conception of the march of economic development is incompatible with the Marxist theory of surplus value. Therefore, Bernstein abandons the theory of value and surplus value and, in his way, the whole economic system of Karl Marx. But the struggle of the proletariat cannot be carried on without a given final aim and without an economic base found in the existing society. Bernstein, therefore, abandons the class struggle and, therefore, speaks of reconciliation with bourgeois liberalism. But in a class society, the class struggle is a natural and unavoidable phenomena. Bernstein, therefore, contests even the existence of classes in society. The working class is, for him, a mass of individuals, divided politically and intellectually, but also economically, and the bourgeoisie, according to him, does not group itself politically in accordance with an inner economic interest, but only because of exterior pressure from above and below. But there is no economic base for the class struggle, and, if consequently, there are no classes in our society, not only the future, but even the past struggles of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie appear to be impossible, and the social democracy and its successes seem absolutely incomprehensible and can only be understood as the results of political pressure by the government, that is, not as the natural consequences of historical development, but as the fortuitous consequences of the policy of the Hohenzollern, not as the legitimate offspring of capitalist society, but as the bastard children of reaction, rigorously logical. In this respect, Bernstein passes from the materialist conception of history to the outlook of the Frankfurt Zetung, Frankfurter Zetung, and the Vossik Zetung. After rejecting the socialist criticism of capitalist society, it is easy for Bernstein to find the present state of affairs satisfactory, at least in a general way. Bernstein does not hesitate. He discovers at the present time reaction is not strong in Germany, that we cannot speak of political reaction in the countries of Western Europe and that, in all the countries of the West, the attitude of the bourgeois classes toward the socialist movement is, at most, an attitude of defense, not one of oppression. Vorwärts, March 26, 1899. Far from becoming worse, the situation of the workers is actually getting better. Indeed, the bourgeoisie is politically progressive and morally sane. We cannot speak either of reaction or oppression. It is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Bernstein thus travels in logical sequence from A to Z. He began by abandoning the final aim, 
and supposedly keeping the movement, but as there can be no socialist movement without a socialist aim, he ends by renouncing the movement. And thus, Bernstein's conception of socialism collapses entirely. The proud and admirable systemic constructions of socialist thought become for him a pile of rubbish, in which the debris of all systems, the pieces of thought of various great and small minds, find a common resting place. Marx and Proudhon, Leon de Buch and Franz Oppenheimer, Frederick Albert Lang and Kant, Herr Popkovich and R. Ritter von Neupauer, Herkner and Schultz Gavernitz, LaSalle, and Professor Julius Wolff all contribute something to Bernstein's system. From each he takes a little. There is nothing astonishing about that. For, when he abandons scientific socialism, he lost the axis of intellectual crystallization around which these isolated facts group themselves in an organic whole of a coherent conception of the world. His doctrine, composed of bits of all possible systems, seems upon first consideration to be completely free from prejudices. For Bernstein does not talk of party science, or to be more exact, of class science, any more than he likes to talk of class liberalism or class morality. He thinks he succeeds in expressing human, general, abstract science, abstract liberalism, abstract morality. But, since the society of reality is made up of classes which have diametrically opposed interests, aspirations, and conceptions, a general human science and social questions, an abstract liberalism and abstract morality, are at present illusions, pure utopia, the science, the democracy, the morality considered by Bernstein as general human, are merely the dominant science, dominant democracy, and dominant morality, that is, bourgeois science, bourgeois democracy, bourgeois morality. When Bernstein rejects the economic doctrine of Marx in order to swear by the teachings of Bretano, Baumberwark, Javans, Say in Julius Wolff, he exchanges the scientific base of the emancipation of the working class for the apologetics of the bourgeoisie. When he speaks of the general human character of liberalism and transforms socialism into a variety of liberalism, he deprives the socialist movement generally of its class character and consequently of its historic content, consequently of all content, and conversely recognizes the class representing liberalism in history, the bourgeoisie, as the champion of the general interests of humanity. And when he wars against raising of the material factors to the rank of an all-powerful force of development, he protests against the so-called contempt for the ideal that is supposed to rule the social democracy. When he presumes to talk for idealism, for mortals, pronouncing himself at the same time against the only source of the moral rebirth of the proletariat, a revolutionary class struggle, he does no more than the following. Preach to the working class the quintessence of the morality of the bourgeoisie, that is, reconciliation with the existing social order, and the transfer of all hopes of the proletariat into the limbo of ethical simulacra. When he directs his keenest arrows against our dialectic system, he is really attacking the specific mode he thought employed by the conscious proletariat in its struggle for liberation. It is an attempt to break the sword that has helped the proletariat to pierce the darkness of its future. It is an attempt to shatter the intellectual arm with the aid of what the proletariat, though materially under the yoke of the bourgeoisie, it is an attempt to shatter the intellectual arm with the aid of which the proletariat, though materially under the yoke of the bourgeoisie, is yet enabled to triumph over the bourgeoisie. For it is our dialectical system that shows to the working class the transitory nature of this yoke, proving to workers the inevitability of their victory, and is already realizing a revolution in the domain of thought. Say goodbye to our current system of dialectics, and resorting instead to the intellectual seesaw of the one hand, on the other hand, yes, but, although, however, more, less, etc. 
he quite logically lapses into a mode of thought that belongs historically to the bourgeoisie in decline, being the faithful intellectual reflection of the social existence and political activity of the bourgeoisie at that stage, the political on the one hand, on the other hand, yes, but of the bourgeoisie today resembles, in a marked degree, Bernstein's manner of thinking, which is the sharpest and surest proof of the bourgeois nature of his conception of the world. But, as it is used by Bernstein, the word bourgeois itself is not a class expression, but a general social notion. Logical to the end, he has exchanged together with his science, politics, morals, and mode of thinking the historic language of the proletariat for that of the bourgeoisie. When he uses without distinction the term citizen in reference to the bourgeois, as well as the proletarian intending thereby to refer to man in general, he identifies man in general with the bourgeois and human society with bourgeois society. Chapter 10. Opportunism and Theory in Practice. Bernstein's book is of great importance to the German and the international labor movement. It is the first attempt to give a theoretic base to the opportunist currents common in the social democracy. These currents may be said to have existed for a long time in our movement. If we take into consideration such sporadic manifestations of opportunism as the question of subsidization of steamers, but it is only since about 1890, with the suppression of the anti-socialist laws, that we have a trend of opportunism of a clearly defined character. Vollmer's state socialism, the vote on the Bavarian budget, the agrarian socialism of South Germany, Heinz's policy of compensation, Chappelle's stand on tariffs and militarism are the high points of the development of our opportunistic practice. What appears to characterize this practice above all? A certain hostility to theory. This is quite natural, for our theory, that is the principles of scientific socialism, impose clearly marked limitations on practical activity. Insofar as it concerns the aims of this activity, the means used in attaining these aims, and the method employed in this activity, it is quite natural for people who run after immediate practical results to want to free themselves from such limitations to render their practice independent of our theory. However, this outlook is refuted by every attempt to apply it in reality. State socialism, agrarian socialism, the policy of compensation, the question of the army, all constituted defeats of our opportunism. It is clear that if this current is to maintain itself, it must try to destroy the principles of our theory and elaborate a theory of its own. Bernstein's book is precisely an effort in that direction. That is why at Stuttgart, all the opportunist elements in our party immediately group themselves around Bernstein's banner. If the opportunist currents and the current practical activity of our party are in entirely natural phenomena, which can be explained by the light of the special conditions of our activity and its development, Bernstein's theory is no less natural. An attempt to regroup these currents into a general theoretical expression, an attempt to elaborate its own theoretical conditions, and the break with scientific socialism. That is why the published expression of Bernstein's ideas should be recognized as a theoretic test for opportunism and as its first scientific legitimization. What is the result of this test? We have seen the result. Opportunism is not a position to elaborate a positive theory capable of withstanding criticism. All it can do is attack various isolated theses of Marxist theory, and, just because Marxist doctrine constitutes one solidly constructed edifice, hope by this means to shake the entire system from the top to its foundation. This shows that opportunist practice is essentially irreconcilable with Marxism, but it also proves that opportunism is incompatible with socialism the socialist movement, in general, that its internal tendency to push the labor movement into bourgeois paths, that opportunism tends to paralyze completely the proletarian class struggle, the latter 
considered historically, has evidently nothing to do with Marxist doctrine. For, before Marx, and independently from him, there have been labor movements and various socialist doctrines, each of which, in its way, was the theoretical expression corresponding to the conditions of the time of the struggle of the working class for its emancipation. The theory that consists in basing socialism on the moral notion of justice, on a struggle against the mode of distribution, instead of basing it on a struggle against the mode of production, the conception of class antagonism as an antagonism between the poor and the rich, the effort to graft cooperative principle on capitalist economy, all the nice notions found in Bernstein's doctrine, already existed before him. All these theories were, in their time, in spite of their insufficiency, effective theories for the proletarian class struggle. They were the children's seven-league boots, thanks to which the proletarian learned to walk upon the scene of history. But after the development of the class struggle and its reflex in its social conditions, had led to the abandonment of these theories and the elaboration of the principles of scientific socialism, there could be no socialism, at least in Germany, outside of Marxist socialism, and there could be no socialist class struggle outside of the social democracy. From then on, socialism and Marxism, the proletarian struggle for the emancipation of the social democracy, were identical. That is why the return to pre-Marxist socialist theories no longer signifies today a return to the seven-league boots of the childhood of the proletariat, but a return to the puny, worn-out slippers of the bourgeoisie. Bernstein's theory was the first, and at the same time, the last attempt to give a theoretic base to opportunism. It is the last because in Bernstein's system, opportunism has gone, negatively, through its renunciation of scientific socialism, positively through its marshalling of every bit of theoretic confusion possible, as far as it can. In Bernstein's book, opportunism has crowned its theoretical development, just as it completed its practical development in the position taken by Schnippel, on the question of militarism, and has reached its ultimate conclusion. Marxist doctrine can not only refute opportunism theoretically, it alone can explain opportunism as a historical phenomena in the development of the party. The forward march of the proletariat, on a world-historic scale, to its final victory is not indeed so simple a thing. The peculiar character of this movement that resides precisely in the fact that here, for the first time in history, the popular masses themselves, in opposition to the ruling classes are to impose their will, but they must effect this outside the present society, beyond the existing society. This will, the masses can only form in constant struggle against the existing order. The union of the broad popular masses, with an aim reaching beyond the existing social order, the union of the daily struggle with the great world transformation, that is the task of the social democratic movement, which must logically grope on its road of development between the following two rocks, abandoning the mass character of the party, or abandoning the final aim, falling into bourgeois reformism, into sectarianism, anarchism, or opportunism. In its theoretical arsenal, Marxist doctrine furnished, more than half a century ago, arms that are effective against both of these extremes. But, because our movement is a mass movement, and because the dangers menacing it are not derived from the human brain but from social conditions, Marxist doctrine could not assure us, in advance and once for always, against the anarchist and opportunist tendencies. The latter can be overcome only as we pass from the domain of theory to the domain of practice, but only with the help of the arms furnished to us by Marx. Bourgeois revolutions, wrote Marx half a century ago, like these of the 18th century, rush onward rapidly. From success to success, their stage effects outbid one another. Men and things seem to be set in flaming brilliance. Ecstasy is the prevailing spirit, but they are short-lived. They reach their climax speedily, and then society relapses into a long fit of nervous reaction before it learns how to appropriate the fruits of its period of feverish excitement. Proletarian revolutions, on the contrary, 
such as those of the 19th century, criticize themselves constantly, constantly interrupt themselves in their own course, come back to what seems to have been accomplished in order to start anew, scorn with cruel thoroughness and the half-measures, weakness, meanness of their first attempts, seem to throw down the adversary only to enable him to draw fresh strength from the earth and again rise up against them in more gigantic stature, constantly recoil in fear before the undefined monster magnitude of their own objects, until finally the situation is created which renders all retreats impossible and conditions themselves cry out, Hic Rodus! Hic Salta! Here is the rose, and here we must dance. 18th Brumaire. This has remained true after the elaboration of the doctrine of scientific socialism. The proletarian movement has not as yet, all at once, become social democratic, even in Germany, but it is becoming more social democratic, surmounting continuously the extreme deviations of anarchism and opportunism, both of which are the only determining phases of the development of the social democracy, considered as a process. For these reasons, we must say that the surprising thing here is not the appearance of an opportunist current, but rather its feebleness, as long as it showed itself in isolated cases to be the practical activity of the party, one could suppose that it had a serious political base, but now that it has shown its face in Bernstein's book, one cannot help exclaim with astonishment, What? Is that all you have to say? Not the shadow of an original thought? Not a single idea that was not refuted, crushed, reduced to dust by Marxism decades ago? It was enough for opportunism to speak out, to prove that it had nothing to say. In the history of our party, that is the only importance of Bernstein's book, thus saying goodbye to the modes of thought of the revolutionary proletariat, to dialectics, to the materialist conception of history. Bernstein can thank them for the attenuating circumstances they provided for his conversion. For only dialectics, the materialist conception of history, magnanimous as they are, could make Bernstein appear as an unconscious, predestined instrument, by means of which the rising working class expresses its momentary weakness, but which, upon closer inspection, it throws aside contemptuously and with pride. That brings us to the end of Reform or Revolution. The text for this was provided by the Marxist Internet Archive, available at marxist.org. Next time, a specter is haunting. Yeah, well, Karl Marx. The specter? of Kropotkin. An Appeal to the Young by Peter Kropotkin.